0: All right. tonight's teaching comes from a bunch of different verses from Genesis 6, 7, and 8. I'll have them highlighted there on the screen for you. They're also available in your service folder if you'd like to refer back. It goes like this. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I I am surely going to destroy them and the earth. And for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth And as the waters increased, those waters lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, All the animals uh, and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of uh, all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. This is God's word. I mentioned earlier that I think with the flood accounts, just as we've stated with the fall of mankind in Genesis 3 and Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, I think there are different levels of understanding of the text and obviously it starts out with something of a uh, kind of simplistic,, um, uh, you know, a Sunday schoolish sort of understanding of a text. And again, by that, I don't mean uh, that it's necessarily untrue. I just mean that it's sort of incomplete. And I think the same thing, again, is true with the story of Noah and the flood. I think the simplistic or overly simplistic understanding of the account is that uh, the people of the world became bad and then God got mad and that was it, right? Um, I think as you get a little bit older and you analyze the text again, uh, usually, you know, by the time you're a teenager or young adult, you start to form your own opinions, And you start trying to reconcile, maybe even have difficulty reconciling the idea of a truly loving God and the idea that he would wipe off the planet millions, maybe even up to a billion people at the time of Noah. That's maybe a little bit difficult to to all hold together. And then you move on to the next stage, sort of in maturity of understanding in life, and you start to think, you know what? The floods, the catastrophic floods that come in life are sort of inevitable. And some of them probably are self-inflicted, and some of them just seem to happen just because of the inevitability of a fallen world. And uh, in the grand scheme of life, uh, what really matters is who's prepared and who's not prepared when the inevitable floods of life actually end up coming. And to sort of support that understanding, a couple weeks ago I was reading an article by a social psychologist who made a very interesting and I've never heard this before analysis of actually what happened with a kind of natural disaster back in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina and he said there's essentially two ways of reading that account you can either read the account as this is a natural disaster an inevitable act of God that nobody could have done anything about or you can read the story of hurricane katrina as something like this and he cited information actually in reference to the nation of holland and he said the dutch people Uh, Partially because their nation is, uh, much of it is actually under sea level itself, and so they're under this constant susceptibility to flooding, what they have done is they've sunk a ton of time and energy and resources into building dikes that their specifications for it are that it would be able to withstand the worst storm in 10,000 years. Okay, so that costs a lot and it's a marvel of modern technology, but they said, in order to be safe, this is what we've done. On the other hand, when you look, for instance, at New Orleans, and this is kind of public knowledge, they built the specifications of their dikes surrounding their city, and again, they are in a, obviously, severe floodplain. They built the specification of their dikes for the worst storm in 100 years. Now, arguably, that's not the wisest way to do it when you factor the, uh, when you put into account the fact that uh, the average human lifespan is about 80 years which means the odds are actually fairly high that sometime during the course of your life there is going to be some kind of massive catastrophic flood that could completely uh, destroy the city and at the, at the very least displace you for a significant amount of time. And what the social psychologist also said was you couple this with the fact that uh, he, he gave some evidence. That the sort of internal politics in the city of Louisiana, and as well as other spots that he mentioned in in Mississippi uh, and Louisiana and New Orleans, uh, he said there's there's known to be a little bit of internal political corruption. He says, in other words, uh, when you know there's resources out there, time and energy and money, the technology to build. Dykes that will withstand however they calculate the worst possible storm in 10,000 years. There's the ability to calculate, uh, to make those dikes and form those dikes. But you choose not to do it. Because you want to allocate your resources elsewhere and maybe even line your pockets along the way. Who knows? But for whatever reason, you choose not to do it. In the grand scheme of things, when that hurricane comes in 2005, is this primarily an act of God that was absolutely and certainly unavoidable or did the devastation come because of some amount of human selfishness and corruption and wickedness? See? It's something worth thinking about. In other words, far from this idea that how could a loving God possibly allow, you know, X, Y, and Z, maybe the the floods that actually come in life are just as much or more the product of human wickedness and human selfishness and uh, obviously as Christians we'd add to that a lack of submitting to a God. I think the story of Noah actually fleshes all of that out pretty well for us. And, you know, the, the previous accounts that we've looked at, the, the fall of mankind and Cain and Abel, Obviously, those stories are about 15 verses apiece, and so we can cover the whole thing in good detail. This one actually stretches out over the span of three or four chapters in Genesis, and so we obviously can't read the whole thing and can't cover every possible detail. So what we're going to do is kind of the 30,000-foot overview, uh, looking over the whole account, giving the details, and then unpacking some of what that means. The flood account goes uh, by and large like this. We said the precondition for the flood is humanity's wickedness. And we're told in the first verse that we read here this evening, which was verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So general statement, all humanity has some level of wickedness all the time. Now, you say, well, what exactly does that mean? Isn't, you know, isn't there some kind of subjective moral assessment of how wicked people truly are? Well, we're given two specific things in the text that points to the wickedness of humanity. The first one we actually didn't read. I didn't read the opening verses from Genesis 6, in part because those are notoriously, uh, there's a tremendous amount of um, debate on the interpretation of those verses. So all I'm going to say is it, this, this first point is from Genesis 6-2, which says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Now, again, even though there's some debate over exactly what that means, the sons of God and the daughters of humans, and at the very least, at the, at the very minimum, what most scholars will agree on is the sons of God seemingly are believing men and the daughters of humans are non-believing women. And therefore, what we seem to be understanding here is that uh, the sons of God, the believing men, are prioritizing physical beauty. It's not wrong to just choose somebody that you're physically attracted to as a spouse, but they're primarily choosing physical beauty over and above spiritual purity. Uh, They're primarily choosing their feelings and their desires over God's will. They're primarily choosing what they want in the here and now over what is beneficial for them eternally. And that always results in some level of wickedness. See? The second thing that we see in the text, and this is a verse that we read earlier from verse 11, says, It says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So not only did humans care more about the physical than the spiritual, but they cared about their own physical welfare much more than the physical welfare of any other humans, which, by the way, is the the predisposed condition for violence. Violence happens when you care about your own physical welfare ahead of everybody else's welfare. It gives you a justification towards violence. And for these reasons, because the humans have started to act like the animals, God says, you know what, I created you specially. I created you in my image. I created you to be the crown of all creation. Yet you function just like the rest of the the fallen animals of the world and I'm done with it. I'm going to wash it all away and I'm going to start completely over. And yet there's one individual that God says pursues his heart and worships him purely, and that is a guy by the name of Noah. And we read in verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, I'm going to say I'm not overly like enamored with that uh, translation, uh, particularly the words that I have underlined there. I'm okay with righteous. That is the Hebrew word tzaddik, and righteous is probably the best translation of that word. Uh, the word with the underlined there, blameless, is the Hebrew word tamim. And it certainly can be translated as blameless, but it can also be translated like complete and whole and right. And therefore, when you read the rest of the account of Noah's life, you find out Noah is not completely and utterly blameless. He's not completely sinless. Uh, shortly after he and his family get off the ark, he gets blackout drunk. Noah's capable of sin. Uh... However, he is righteously complete. He does know that he's a sinner. He does trust the Genesis 3.15 promise of a coming Savior. He does believe in God's grace specifically for him in his life. And he regularly worships God as a result of knowing that grace. In other words, he walks with God and he regularly worships God. And for that reason, because he has a relationship with God, God comes to him and says, Noah, here's what I'm going to do in the coming years. By the way, this is not a snap decision. It's going to be about 120 years. He says, what I want you to do over the course of these next years is going to be a constant testimony to the watching world. They are going to get a full century of you building this enormous boat and every time somebody walks by and wonders what on earth is Noah and his family doing, you're going to have the opportunity to share with them the, the, the encouragement to repent for the kingdom of God is near." The opportunity to witness and encourage repentance. And along the way, God says, you know, he not only is specific about the timetable, he's also specific about the blueprint, essentially, of the ark. It's going to be 45 feet, uh, excuse me, 450 feet long. It's going to be 75 feet wide. It's going to be 45 feet high. And I want you to bring aboard the ark two of every animal. Two of all the unclean animals that exist. Around the earth. Now I'm going to help you with this because that's a big undertaking. So God kind of ushers them to the ark. Seven pairs of every of the clean animals so that they are available to make sacrifices and whatnot. Furthermore, God is also going to be very specific in the narrative about the timeline. We're told that it ends up raining. The flooding happens for a total of 40 days and 40 nights. After that, we're told the next benchmark is the flood waters prevail upon the earth for a total of 150 days. Next, so even though the floodwaters have stopped prevailing, there starts the recession of the floodwaters on the earth. That lasts for 163 days. And yet, even after the floodwaters have receded entirely, that doesn't mean that the, the, the earth is habitable totally at that point. It's you know totally saturated with all that water. So, after another 57 days, God tells Noah and the animals to finally come off the ark. Now, if you're calculating that all in your head, that's 313 days that the flood is upon the earth. 370 days that Noah and his family are in the ark. They only come out when God tells them to come out, and when they come out, the very first thing that they do, Noah builds an altar to God in gratitude and dedication, thanking him for sparing his and his family's life. Now, um, it would be really interesting to go through, and of the stories in the Bible that skeptics love to sort of pick at, And nitpick with it starts it's probably the creation account and then Jesus death and resurrection and the third most common one to sort of pick at is the the flood account. Uh, I would love to go through for the next hour and just do apologetics points sort of deprogramming some of the arguments. We're not going to obviously do that. I'm going to give you three things that I think are very helpful for talking to maybe skeptical friends that might be willing to just kind of push off the flood. Uh, Number one that phrase, two of every kind, that is brought upon the ark, that's a very important phrase. That's a very specific word there that's used. Two of every kind. That's the same word that's used back in the creation account in Genesis 1. For everything reproduces according to its kind. That is not necessarily species and it's not really breed. In other words, Noah does not gather you know, two uh, Labradors and two pit bulls and two German shepherds and bring them all on the ark. He gathers two canines. And those two canines have all of the reproductive genetic potential for every dog that you see on the planet. That's a kind. Now, when you take into account the fact that 75% of the world's species exist underwater and you don't have to bring them on board, what that leaves you with, so far as we can tell, according to that categorization, is somewhere around 12 or 13,000 kinds. When you further take into account the fact that the average size of those kinds is about the size of a sheep, You get 13,000 pairs of sheep and their food source, and guess what? The math definitely all works out. It's all doable. I'm not saying this wasn't overall miraculous. I'm just saying make sure that you understand which parts are miraculous in the account and which parts just naturally, logically work out. Secondly, uh, one of the things that people tend to uh, fight against, there's over 200 independent that we're aware of today, 200 independent ancient stories about global floods from different people groups. So the Aztecs, the Incas, the Mayans, the Chinese uh, groups in Africa, the Irish, they all have ancient stories about some kind of global flood. What that tells us is, in ancient history, there probably was a global flood when every people group in their history are pointing to it. Now, they all have different details so far as we can tell, but nonetheless, it points uh, every people group in antiquity seem to suggest there is such a thing as a large global flood. And if that is, in fact, the case, you know what that does? That gives us all sorts of explanatory information when it comes to things like the fossil records and things like the mountain ranges and the alignment of the continents and things like climate patterns that we still observe today. Finally, uh, sometimes I'll get this. Well, Moses is writing the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, including this, around 1500 B.C., and even though there's over 200 different uh, independent uh, global flawed accounts, almost every you know, historian traces them. The, the oldest ones are ancient Mesopotamia, because we understand that's everybody agrees that's where the first peoples came from. And yet, within those accounts in ancient Mesopotamia, there are some that many scholars would date to be older than the biblical text. And so the skeptic would say, well, the Bible is just, you know, it's, it's cheating. It's just ripping off stories from other accounts. So, uh, there, for instance, there's a story of a guy named Atrahasis, and there's the, probably the most famous one is something called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And they're seemingly dated prior to the story of Noah and the great flood from Genesis. How do you reconcile that? Very easy. Uh, in fact, you've, you've done this whole thing in your own life yourself, sometimes a matter of setting the record straight. If you have ever been gossiped about, and one of your friends heard it, and one of your friends brought the story back to you, and you said, uh, that's not how that went, what really happened was this. You were not the first person to tell that story, but you needed to tell the story in order to set the record straight. Somebody else was in first, but they had a less accurate story. So it makes perfect sense that God, as all these ancient peoples have their own independent you know, flood accounts, and they're traversing the earth with all of these kind of raw details, that God would say to Moses, uh, we need to set the record straight about this. Here's what actually happened, and I'm going to give you three or four chapters worth of details so that there's no doubts about it moving forward. Okay. Now, all that said... Um, you know, the, the, the flood account uh, is when Noah gets off the boat and just understand essentially what's happened. This is basically the most, other than Jesus' death and resurrection, this has to be the most impactful event in world history. But do you, do you see how, how poetic this is within the context of Genesis? There is watery chaos that's covering over the earth. Does that sound familiar? If you go back to Genesis chapter one, uh, you remember, if you were, you were there when we touched on this, God creates all of the raw material of the universe on day one of creation. And then he orders the rest of creation from chaos to order under the authority and the power of his word. He says, Let there be this and let there be that. And it, the, the universe moves from chaos to order under the authority of God's word. Now, what has happened over the sequence of time by Genesis chapter 6? All creation, all humanity has defied and disobeyed God's word. And therefore, what is the catastrophe that falls upon the earth? It's not random. It's a watery chaos. It's returning everything back to what it was on day one of creation. Why? Because on day one of creation, God used the authority of his word to create order in the world, but when humanity defied his authority of his word, everything moves from a state of order back to watery chaos. And the only one that survives is who? The one person, the one family that submitted to the authority of God's word and actually trusted God's promise and therefore got on the ark. See this? Um... (sighs) Noah's first concern when he gets off the ark is I need to thank God I need to worship God So he builds an altar to God and this is a symbol of his dedication and gratitude to God and we're actually told the text tells us that the smoke ascended up to God and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord to such an extent that God's anger was assuaged and he promises at that moment that he will never allow something like this to come upon the earth at any point in the future until the very end of time. Now listen carefully. Let me put this in different terms and see if this sounds familiar. God fearing Noah offered a sacrifice To God, so pleasing that God promised not to punish mankind any further. In other words, Noah's sacrifice that was pleasing to God didn't just affect God's attitude towards Noah, it affected God's attitude toward all mankind. Now, if that sounds familiar, It's because every week what we've been doing is we've been saying, you know, in the same way that the Bible says that there was an original Adam and yet in the New Testament God brings forth a second Adam and there was an Abel and God brings forth another Abel who brings great sacrifices and yet in the same way that there was a Noah, there was also somebody that God brought forth in the future that perfectly walked with God in the New Testament. To such an extent that God the Father three times in the course of the gospel says this is my son th- w- whom I love with him. I am well pleased. I'm well pleased with him. He's perfect in every way. He walks with me. And yet the storm of God's wrath against the violence and rebellion and sin of mankind was nonetheless brewing and Jesus knew it was coming. And so Jesus the greater Noah does what? He knows that at the end of time, this is going to bring about the destruction of mankind. And so, what does he do? He goes to the cross. And at the cross, Jesus takes everything the human race deserved for our violence, for our wickedness, for our rebellion and sin. Why? Jesus sinks underneath the floodwaters of God's wrath down into the abyss so that we could be lifted up. He offers us a lifeboat, he offers us an ark. He offers us, let's call it the church. And he says, all who enter, all who trust in him will be safe from the inevitable storms of life and from the coming judgment. And he says, I want to invite you, climb into me. Climb into my ark, climb into my church and one day when you step out, you're going to step out on dry ground which is called paradise where you can worship freely for all eternity. Now, what does this mean? Each week we've tried to do a couple application points, even though there's, there's probably hundreds packed in here. Here's three I want, to take, I want you to take with you. Number one, a loving God must judge. A lot of people are upset about the account of Noah, not just because they think it sounds unrealistic, but because it involves a loving and merciful God bringing the destruction of millions, perhaps even up to a billion people on earth. Now, I would just start by saying I would agree. That is kind of upsetting. We should be upset by the destruction of that amount of humanity. All I'd ask you to do is I'd challenge you to think about the alternative. What if you have a God who looks at the wickedness, rebellion, and sin of mankind and does nothing? Is that a loving God? But once a year or so, I'll get out a quote. Some of you have, I'm sure, seen this one now three or four times now. It's from a Croatian theologian uh, who is now, I think he heads the, the, the uh, Yale Divinity Department. But his name is Miroslav Wolf, And perhaps in his most famous work called Exclusion and Embrace, he writes the following. He says, This teaching of divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. The idea that God is a just God who punishes sin and wrongdoing. He says that is unpopular with a lot of modern Christians. And yet he goes on to say, But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. Now here's what he's saying. This is, I mean, it's it's a little condescending, but whether or not it's condescending, the, the question is whether or not it's true. Here's what he's saying He's saying, if you grew up where I did, if you lived where I did in Eastern Europe, let's say like in the Balkans, and there was this constant war going on around you, and you constantly throughout your life saw villages being pillaged, and you saw your women being raped and your children being raped, and you saw some of your own family members that you loved being taken into prison camps and tortured and experimented upon, and then somebody from a comfortable western climate comes to you and says, no, God is a God of love. He would never punish the wrongdoer for anything. He would never bring any justice. We, you know, even the impenitent, God will never bring any punishment upon them. What Wolf would say is the damage that you will do upon the victim psychologically at that point is almost as damaging as the actual wounds the Literal wounds themselves. If you try to teach people that a God of love never punishes the wrongdoer, never punishes wrongdoing, then he is by definition unjust, which means that he is by definition unloving there must be justice in order for God to be a loving God. In fact, what Wolf would say, the proof is in the pudding. In practical terms, he said, the only thing that I've ever seen that caused people to stop the perpetual cycle of violence and retribution and vengeance, that caused people to actually put down their weapons and not lash out and strike back for wrongdoing done against them is the idea of cosmic divine justice. The idea of a final judgment at the end of time where God will take all those who have not repented of their sins and will say, fine, if you reject my free and full forgiveness, I'm going to right the wrongs and you will face punishment for those things. That is the only thing, that, that by the way is the exact logic that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 for why you should forgive. And in fact, he would say, if you do not have a conscious understanding in your life of the coming final judgment from God, it is going to be enormously difficult to ever muster up the energy to forgive anybody. See, if if you don't understand that God is going to bring justice at the end of time, letting go of some of the wrongs that have been committed against you here on this earth, if you don't think he's going to take care of it, then you feel like you have to take care of it, which is why people pick up the weapons. See? Um, A loving God, if he is loving, he has to bring judgment. Number two, A killing act can also save. I think most people would look at the story of Noah and the flood and they would say, well, this is a story of judgment. Yeah, it's that, but it's actually a story of salvation that comes through judgment. And Peter tells us exactly that in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he makes the analogy between Noah and the flood and the waters of baptism. Because those same waters can actually destroy the impact of wickedness that exists in the world. Because, yes, the flood is a violent act. What was God trying to stop? humanity's violence. It literally says that. God stops, God brings about the destruction of humans. Why? Because humans were destroying one another. And if he wouldn't have intervened, they would have eradicated the entire human population off the planet. So what does God do? He cuts off a portion of the population, admittedly a big portion, but it's in order to save the human species. Anybody who ever works in you know healthcare or anywhere else understands the concept and the necessity at times of amputation. I just got a, a a flu shot the other day. It's pain and it's it's a little. It feels a little bit like killing. Why do you get it? Because there's saving that actually comes through that in some respects. And so the the conclusion here is, if you sense there is wickedness that that increases in the world, if you sense that these storm clouds ever are gathering together, the encouragement, you know. If you're not in the ark or if you've got one foot in and one foot out, the encouragement is to get yourself in the ark. Uh, God gave Noah's people 120 years, a century, to think about all this. He says when Jesus comes back, he's coming like a thief in the night. So we better be ready right now. And lastly, the, the final thought under this point is if you are in the ark, if you are a believer in Christ and are right now in the ark, then you've got to start Relaxing. Um, Because, look, if you're a Christian, if you're already in the ark, if you're already found in Christ, then the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are inside of Christ Jesus. One judgment, the one judgment that ever actually matters in life is the judgment that comes from God. Nothing else can really hurt you. No failure in life, no sickness in life, no criticism from somebody else in life, even if it's somebody you respect, none of that can actually hurt you. The one judgment that matters has already been taken care of for you at the cross 2,000 years ago. Your final judgment is wrapped up entirely already in Christ Jesus. His killing saved you, you're safe in the ark, and therefore what you have to do, move forward is you and i have to live like we actually believe nothing can truly hurt us yeah. final thought christians care about the world and its inhabitants um it's, it's actually kind of weird to think about because i think most people 30 or 40 or maybe 50 years and younger and younger don't actually realize that the thing, something like global conservationism is actually a relatively new thought in the world Prior to like the 20th century certainly not on a mainstream level people are not thinking about saving the planet uh, that kind of thing you know you had uh, Nixon's Environmental Protection Agency came in 1970 and especially during the Cold War with the uh, the threat of nuclear warfare all of a sudden humans started to gain the co- an understanding that we have the capacity to destroy the planet and hurt the planet and wipe out mankind um, It wasn't really up until that point. um, The flood account confirms all of that. The flood account absolutely says, yes, human wickedness can destroy the planet. The flood account also confirms God's commitment to the earth, to animals, and to humanity. This is a wickedness in the world that God cares about. uh, And therefore, he encourages us to care about it as well. And as a result, then, violence, oppression, destruction are things that are worth us fighting against. Conservation, protection, and the stewardship of the planet are things worth fighting for as believers. Why? Because they testify to the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back in final judgment to renew all things right here on earth. Therefore, the final thought is this. One day the whole world, one day the whole world is going to behave like those animals entering onto the ark perfectly ordered, perfectly obedient, perfectly worshiping, perfectly submitting to the word of God, it will be incomprehensibly good. And therefore, until that day, just three things. We wait, and we witness, and we worship. You wait with an understanding that this world in its present form has fallen. And we Therefore, Christians have absolutely realistic expectations about what is essentially possible here on planet earth we work towards the good but we understand this side of heaven that there's going to be a fallenness that exists there and we wait patiently number two we witness to the will of god The sharing of his good news, the forgiveness, free and full forgiveness of all of our sins, the unconditional and indisputable love and mercy that God has for mankind and the promise of one day it all being a lot better than it is right now. We also witness to the coming kingdom by the the good stewardship that we practice here on earth today. And finally, we worship God because we know by grace he's invited us into the ark. Because at the cross, Jesus offered a sacrifice so pleasing to God that it turned away his punishment from humanity. We are safe and we are secure from anything that could possibly hurt us, from any real storms of life, and any real judgment in the end when we find ourselves entirely in Christ Jesus. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, whether the floods that we're facing right now are self-inflicted, or they are simply unavoidable in this fallen world. We know where we end up. We know we're going to be perfectly safe. You have brought us into your ark. You have made a sweet sacrifice at the cross to pay for all of our sins. And with our own two feet, we are going to stand and worship you in paradise. Help us live like we believe exactly that. We ask this in your name. Amen.